everyone. Welcome to Painted by Quarterly Slush Pile. We do the work of curating some work for you, um, and we reveal our process on this show. So thank you for tuning in. Um, we are about to read a couple poems by a submitter, and we wrote her and asked her for additional permission to do this. And, um, and the we is really funny. KVM always likes a new thing, but today's new thing is weird. Joe Zhang and I, Kathleen Volkmiller, are alone in the studio. What? Yeah, everybody react. So I'm not sure if this is a nightmare or a secret dream. (laughs) Does it feel like very zombie apocalypse? Like, how are we the only ones here? (laughs) If we were, you know what we have in here? If we got trapped in this studio, we have a banana. And a large black coffee. This is my banana. I brought it from home. Oh, oh, he's ready to say he's not going to share his banana. All right. Oh, my God. I would share my guy's coffee. (laughs) (laughs) So you could both be hypercapitated for this obvious apocalypse. (laughs) Well, I might need the strength. You know what's in here? There's like a coat, an old, old, old school metal coat rack. And it oh, looks so much more like a weapon than a coat rack. That, that that's what I'm going for right there. That that weapon's mine. Okay. You could use that cheap lamp since you won't share your banana. I'll use the soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got to get them in the brain. I got a better. Does idea. it have any sharp edges? Does like your soundboard have any? No, like I just have to smash their skulls in four corners. It's heavy as hell. I think he's thinking he's gonna smash them. I'd like to poke. I em. think you're gonna tire yourself out. Really fast. <laughs> I think you're just going to get really tired. If I use the coat rack, I can still stand six feet away. That's why I want the coat rack. I think that's a better plan. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. So that's happening. And um, then we have Jason. I think you're at home today, Jason. I am at home. I am in Brooklyn. I actually, I am... Alternate side street of the parking. Uh, alternate side street of the parking. Alternate side <laughs> of the street parking Hello. has kept me trapped in my house. Um, <laughs> so yes, I am. I am appropriate. I will not get a ticket, but good heavens, it's so much work. It is indeed so much work. <laughs> oh my gosh! Hi, Marion. You don't have to worry about no parking out there in Abu Dhabi. You just ride camels oh. everywhere, right? It's all camels and the public bus for me. (laughs) Yes, Um, tell us about that. Yes, well, here I am sitting in my office with Samantha. We're cuddled up next to each other. Hi. Hi, Samantha. (laughs) And it's not fall here. However, the weather is changing slightly, Mm -hmm. right? It's more bearable outside. There was a fog and a sandstorm Mm -hmm. yesterday, all sort of combined. It was Mm -hmm. eerie and beautiful and gritty. (laughs) People are carrying pumpkin spice lattes in a performative way. <laughs> really? Well, you guys, I loved I love to bust you when you talk about how there's season changes because I just looked up the weather and it's 99 degrees in Abu Dhabi today. It's, yeah. it's 99 yeah. and and the low is 85. Totally bearable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at 67, but I'm still not a fan of the pumpkin latte. <laughs> like that's a sous vide. Like that's not weather. 
I'm fine. All right, New York, easy, easy. <laughs> All right, but Marion, also tell tell our listeners because I know that you know you're always you used to always talk about looking at this or that out your window, and uh, you recently moved off campus. I did recently moved off campus, which means that Samantha and I are curled up in my office, as I said, and I have a lovely window that looks out on get this a park, right? So there's this like park green area. So there's birds and flowers and a ton of green on the high line (laughs) in the middle of the NYU Abu Dhabi campus. And so that's what we're staring at. And the sun's beginning to set. Gorgeous golden hour. It's really just ridiculously beautiful. I love you so much, but you've told us about the garden out your office window. I want to hear about your new apartment. Tell tell our listeners and me anything. How far off campus did you go? Look at this. I'm, I moved about 15 minutes off campus, not as far as Sam. Mm-hmm. Sam lives a little bit farther than I do, but if I lean my head against the window, I can see where she lives. <laughs> We're on the 26th floor, which wow. is a jackass idea for somebody with vertigo. <laughs> Wow. So we're clear, right? I'm like, I love it in here. I can't stand (laughs) it. Oh my God. That's why you're not talking about the view. You never look out the window. (laughs) Back against the wall and look out. (laughs) Oh my God. I was wondering, and we got to it that quickly. Thank you for tuning in to. Yeah. I was going to say, do you remember the NYU library before they put in the screens and you just had that like vertical drop with like a barely waist high balcony? Because I would wait for the elevators with my back against the wall and I would miss the elevators because it was so terrifying. Uh Cat was terrified, too. So we, you know, the little, you know, my talkative little cat. So she's been looking out the window on the eighth floor so she can kind of like see birds and bushes and trees and people, but she hasn't really seen cars before. So now we're in this city <laughs> and like for the first day and a half, she was terrified. Oh. <laughs> because like the traffic looked like strange creatures, I suppose. So, yeah. But she's gotten a little yeah. bit better. I'm sure better she still I. looks out the window, right? Does she? Is she looking she, out the We have a little like sheepskin, mm-hmm. you know, from Ikea that she's yeah. taken over. And she shoves it against the window and basically curls it there and looks out at things. She's yeah, far more brave. I would imagine. I would imagine that that's what she would do. That's nice. I'm happy for Amia. And you get on a bus to go to work now. No, I'm exaggerating. I take a cab or get John to drive me. I have aspirations. When you said you had a view of the park on campus, I was like, oh, you, you didn't really move off campus. Like you moved next door, but you're on the 26th floor. You can see anything. Like you can see the entire city. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, just, I will say this. Like the city is beautiful at night. There's not a lot of advertising on the skin of buildings, but the buildings are lit up in these ridiculously beautiful colors, right? Mm-hmm. So purple, the mosques are green. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of red and like buildings change colors. Like yeah. it's, it really is like a giant mood ring. <laughs> yeah. It feels like Blade Runner. It does feel way. like Blade Runner. Yeah. 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 Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're enjoying the view even from your couch. You know what I mean? And seeing those colors and stuff. That's wonderful. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Thank you. All right. Well, you know what? You guys didn't do formal intros. Do you want to say anything about yourself, Marion Ren or Samantha Neugerbauer? 
other than um, your whole name? I work with Marion at NYU Abu Dhabi. I am an instructor and I am originally from Philadelphia. Woo! 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 And when Samantha <laughs> says like that she has spent time in Upper Darby for the longest time, people thought she was saying, no, what is it? Wait, like, I live in Abu Dhabi. I live in, yeah, I live in Abu Dhabi, but I'm from Philadelphia. <laughs> right. I thought I live in Upper Darby. Exactly. Right? So people miss here Abu Dhabi for Upper Darby. But, but actually right. it's because I was saying Dhabi wrong, right? So uh, it should be with a T-H, Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Yeah. So uh, I needed to say it better. That's right. We mm-hmm. have to practice our Abu, yeah. Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Abu Dhabi. <laughs> and I'm Marion Wren. Um, I have been co-editing PBQ for some years with my favorite people who are on this podcast. Yay! Yay. All right. All right. Well, let's get to it then. Let's get to what we do. Today we have for you two poems by Judith Roney. And um, I'm going to nominate Marion Wren. All right. Belly I can't up. Wait to read this poem. All right. The first poem is called Belly Up, and I quite literally just bellied up <laughs> to my desk to read it. <laughs> Belly Up. Folding room divider separates his life from the belief he'll never see his children again. Truth is, they're adults now, the seven of them, indivisible as always. He feels they are still always against him. When he first left their mother, she carved zigzag lines into each one's minds like ice sheets fractured, called him a nut job. The divider is his mahogany, inlaid with abalone butterflies in flight over a cherry tree, never quite in full bloom. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, while we think we're usually quiet, often a reading of a poem is followed by dead silence. And you might like look at your phone and start clicking things, but it's really the sound of us thinking. So we're going to think for a minute. And it's not that we don't read them before, but it's that hearing them is really different. Absolutely. And so it's part of our movement from the individual isolation of being home alone and then actually coming back together in a group and thinking like, oh, right. See new things. Also, like that performative quality, like having one of us read it aloud. It's like mm-hmm. you know the poet is here with us, but it's like the poet through one mm-hmm. of the editors. And I always love the sound of other people's voices reading these poems too. Mm-hmm. So it's I really admire story. when okay. he first left their mother, she carved zigzag line breaks, stands break lines into each one's mind, like frac- like ice sheets fractured. Yeah. Like that is such a um, apt description mm-hmm. for the kind of trauma and retaliation mm-hmm. when families split up, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I always love when, the, that for me is also the most important moment and the and the most amazing lines, and I love when they're dead center of a poem. Mm-hmm. But why belly up? Like, what am I missing? Is like something belly up? Like something is like turned over? You know what? Let's talk about belly up for a second, because you can say belly up to the bar, which means what you just said, you're like, you know, moving into the desk, moving into the bar. But you also say belly up when somebody dies. Right. Right. So that I never even thought about that till this moment that belly up has such two very different meanings. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's fish, right? When fish die, they're they fall yeah, they belly up, right? Right, mm-hmm. but but why do we also say belly up to the bar, boys? 
right? When that's a good thing. Right. Well, when I first read this, I had this image of him in a hospital room. Um, I think like the room divider kind of made me think of hospitals, but that's not really in the poem. Like I had the sense that he was dying in part because of belly up. And I don't think that's that's an accurate reading. I'm sorry that I laughed. Yeah, I don't think he's in a hospital and dying. Yeah, no. Well, no, because the at the end, it's clarified that the divider is this mahogany. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because is the divider like one of those um, like things you stand behind to dress? Right. 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 And um, if it end is then the divider laying flat, I guess was my question. Oh, why? Um, Well, because of maybe it would be belly up. But I don't I don't know if that's actually there. I was just thinking something physical was belly up. Oh, I I think maybe just the relationship with the kids, you know, he feels they are still always against him. Yeah, I it, it I kept thinking of Aunt Jennifer's tigers um, just because of, you know, that really strong image of the screen as the sort of symbol for the life um, that Adrian Rich poem. But I also I like the way that it forms this kind of separation that the physical space is divided as the brain is compartmentalized, even though the entire poem is kind of built around what it is that he is thinking, even though he's not thinking it, that his life has to be kind of separate from this thing that's always underneath it. You know, you guys, just to stay on this literal divider, I I did, I paused in a, in a confused way, you know, in a knit brow way at mm-hmm. the divider is his mahogany long dash inlaid with abalone butterflies. Like his mahogany, what? Like, you know, the, uh, an M dash instead of a word there, divider, the divider is his mahogany. Mm-hmm. Is strange, right? His yeah. mahogany. What this syntax is really hard to parse there, right? Inlaid yeah. with abalone butterflies in flight. I mean, I can totally see that image of that. You know, we've seen that room divider. We've, we know that design of the cherry tree. Uh, you know, partially in bloom and the butterflies of of abalone. You can see it. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like the, like I really wanted the poem to open up um, right around called him a nut job. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't love zigzag. I, the zigzag lines didn't seem like quite the right image to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I like the image of their brains as kind of like fractured ice sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, but zigzags somehow seemed like a little scant. And then uh, from called him a nutjob, I kind of wanted that to keep opening up and then sort of going back into the divider felt like it felt like too soon to me. Like I really wanted that space to open. Uh Yeah. Can I tell you narrative there? I need to tell you something silly. The zigzag for me worked because it recalled the seven. Like I was also struck by seven children and then zigzag and the way ice fractures all all lined up for me, you know, Uh Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, and I guess I'm sorry, Jason. And the the zigzag also like recalls the 
the shape of that divider unfolded, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sort of like the space that it would take in the room is sort of a zigzag, but I, but I do, t- I love the way you put that. There's something about the, the way the poem is actually super compressed between nut job and back to the divider. Right. And I, and like, I do crave more spaciousness or, um, amplification right in that spot too. What were you going to say, Jason? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I, I thought it was really um, a wonderful image. Uh, there's a Ricky Laurentis poem where he compares the bent heads of men to sevens. And it's like a really beautiful, I mean, he, but he puts yeah. the sevens in the poem and you can see yeah. the the bent heads in the mm-hmm. image of the seven. Um, so yeah. that was a really beautiful thing that, that Kathy was pulling out. And I was thinking of someone else who kind of does that in a little bit more explicit of a way. But you know what though, like, and thinking about some of the comments you've made in other podcasts, there, there are like a a number of really brilliant, beautiful images here, but I don't understand like the image system in a way, right? Like I don't quite fully get, I mean, I get that the divider is sort of becomes this like symbol of the split life, right? Of this, of the split belief, right? That sense of alienation and, and the gap, right? In his life between himself and the kids. Um, but I don't, I don't quite get it to the, to the tune at the end there of, of it being the mahogany and his obsession with it. Right. Is that why, right. is that why I don't well, know. Like, I mean, for fact. me, the landscapes don't quite line up the way that they need to. Right. Cause then the children are these ice sheets that are fracturing that he can't ever get across. Um, and then the room divider is this kind of early spring scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't feel like they kind of end up in a productive counterpoint in part because the divider is him or the divide, the divider isn't him, right? The divider is the way his brain is compartmentalized, but then the ice is the children. And so I feel like there's like a, a slight disconnect between the way that landscape is being used to describe the children and the way landscape is being used to describe his compartmentalization. Well, it's like ice sheets. I, I, I don't know how you say the ice sheets are the children. Well, I mean, it's it, that, that the landscape is, is being used to describe what the children are like, I guess. But I, I also, I really want that. Um, I really want that image to open up so much more. Like I don't quite get how the scar is the separation, right? I mean, I, I get that the mother is turning them against him, but I wanted more in that. Like calling him a nut job isn't isn't enough for me. Like I feel like there's you wanted I more like details a, of the demise of the marriage. Well, I wanted more details of her turning them against him. I wanted more details of how she shaped them to reject him. Mm -hmm. And so the the image of the ice sheet fracturing is a very natural thing that happens. um, Well, I mean, have you ever seen like ice melting Mm -hmm. or like a frozen river being ice broken or or that moment of a spring thaw because it's a or i mean even if you just watch like videos of of glaciers um coming off of or you know what the ice shelf collapsing from the glacier um it's it's such a it's it's not something forced it's something it's something that that like opens up inside the material itself 
Well, I also think children are adults now. So I'm, I'm curious for more as well in terms of like this divider separates his life from his belief. And I guess like, I don't have a real understanding about his life now or about his belief about never seeing his children again, except for that early on, I think the wife called him a nut job. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was when he first left that she started carving into their brains, uh, into their minds, excuse me. And I guess I just don't have a real place about what was so disastrous that all seven of them are still against him many, many years later. Right. Right. So, and just to, Mm -hmm. to, um, extend that and maybe point back a little bit, I think that's why the title points in a particular direction and then mm-hmm. the poem begins to point in, a diff- in another direction and then when I get to like nut job that's a whole different direction right and then it points back to yet another direction which is back to the mahogany mm-hmm. right um to sort of build on that notion of like the territories or the terrains right that Jason's invoking there and I think like you know this is like wildly simplistic but like even if this was a narrative about this dude's complete obsession with like a 17th century Japanese room divider. Like if the, if the divider itself was somehow the precious object that he has mm-hmm. devoted himself to, then there's a whiff of justification for the nut job that might be enough to sustain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That the divider is his mahogany obsession or his, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. His, yeah. his pride, right? But that's a different kind of like my last duchess kind of shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like turning the turning this, this character into an obsessive, which isn't in the poem. Like I'm 100% bringing that, but that's because the poem is like sort of spinning the compass in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, I mean, for me, the poem was very much about how you can live with something underneath you all the time that you can't, you know, like you can't go into your meetings and, you know, talk about how sad you are because your children will never talk to you. You can't, you know, get in the car and like tell the cop who pulls you over that you're sad because your children won't talk to you. But um, over and over again, like, I mean, I, I understand, like, I, I really like the idea of the of the poem about this man who lives with this, you know, sadness that has to be divided from his life, that he can't, you know, sort of, he, he has to live his life with this absence um, informing it. But then I just, I wanted more about what the ab- I wanted more about if it's if it's going to start giving me the history of the absence then I wanted more of that and then the the divider it seems to rest too much on um the being familiar with the divider and I think that Kathy's attention to the divider is his mahogany that that syntax is just it really needs um it it's one of those things where you're not saying what you mean to say, you're relying on us to understand what it is that you're saying, because you could only be saying one thing. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, since the other yeah. one is long, do you think that we're ready to vote? Yeah. I think so. All right, let's do it. One, two, three. Ooh, okay, hold on, sorry. Are, are you guys messaging? Yeah, okay, one, two, three, vote. <laughs> And Joe will read to me your, the head counts here, the thumb counts, flipping thumbs virtually. Don't have everybody yet. And they're coming. We don't have everybody. 
and now we do have everybody. And this one's not going in. Thank you, Judith Roney, for allowing us to discuss it. And we have one more. And um, Jason, I bet you know that I'm going to volunteer you, don't you? Are you? Okay. I am. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Relictual taxon. In biogeography and paleontology, a relict is a population or taxon of organisms widespread or diverse in the past. A relictual population occurs in restricted areas whose original range was far wider during a previous geologic epoch. Similarly, a relictual taxon e.g. species or other lineage, is the sole surviving representative of a formerly diverse group. It persists as a remnant of a once diverse and widespread population. Relictualism occurs when widespread habitat or range changes and a small area is cut off from the whole. A subset population is confined to any hospitable arena and survives while the broader population shrinks or evolves divergently. Stranded or insularized by changes over time, the agent of change could be continental drift or an ice age. I am an exile, patina of pinned landmines scattered rampant over decades, torn paper, and photos in a fen of bog water. Who knew these female organs would be the last? Daughter in a line of mothers, stubborn, canny on a gang plant or an island apart as one unleashed metal while my people dwindled. In this coastal moornet, seawater rises, hear the sigh shine. Whew. Thank you. That was a lot. Um, while while the editorial group is thinking, quietly thinking, I will quietly tell you that um, you really need to go to the website, pbqmag.org, and look at this one because it's written in uh, two skinny columns next to one another. Um, the stanzas are not a consistent pattern either, although the left side column has longer lines than the right side column, and the right side column has more white space altogether because there's a couple of uh, two line and three, I mean, two word and uh, three and four word lines that are kind of floating all by themselves. So uh, you really got to take a look. I'm not going to be able to describe it. Well, and I think that the um, in this one, the two columns do a kind of side-by-side work. Uh, the first one seems to be the voice of a poet or a speaker that's explaining um, a biological phenomenon. And then the second column is the voice of a member of that phenomenon. So it's spoken from within um, the experience that's being described right. on the left. Right. I agree wholeheartedly. There's. I love this poem. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to, no, to jump in. Terrific. I, everything that you're saying makes me love it even more, right? Like the sort of yeah. steady, um, sort of like rich, like lexicon on the left-hand side describing this, this um, 
predicament, environmental predicament, right? And then on the right-hand side, the eye coming forward. And I, I love the way the poem made me stop and not know how to read it right away. Do I do left and then do I read across to the right? Like, are these big, long lines with a sort of gap in the middle? Do I read it top to bottom on the left and then top to bottom on the right? So I really love Jason's choice in reading it the way that he did because it really gives me a sense, right, of the of the context, the predicament, and then the voice within the predicament. Love it. Yeah, because it also makes some sense. There is a kind of dialogue if you read across. I, I would also have read as Jason did, uh, top to bottom of one and then top to bottom of the next. But um, in in biogeography and paleontology, I am an exile. Mm-hmm. Is how that first yeah. the first the lines of each column read the first lines of each column, and you can play with that throughout. Um, so it's, yes. it's very interesting on the page. I really like it. Sorry, I really like it after representative daughter, mm-hmm. and then yeah. of a formerly diverse group colon of a line of mothers, mm-hmm. um, and I think that. It's really it really calls for multiple readings, which I know we look for. And I think that it's really rich if you read it the way Jason read it the first time, then you're familiar with this terminology. You get it. And then you can read in all these different ways multiple times. Yeah, I had a sense that it, it could even be like a kind of choreo poem where you have multiple speakers. Like if you actually had two people reading and you were able to keep the voices separate through the bodies or the voices of, of speakers, then the two things would merge in a really interesting way as well. Ah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is so interesting given what the poem on the right and I, you know, or the section on the right is actually talking about, right? That sense of being like the, the last of a line, right? And yet the poem is in, it could potentially be in these two voices, right? So landing right on that, that, that beat of alienation, isolation, right? And then in conversation with this other voice. Beautiful. Yeah. And I really like, I mean, it doesn't, it's very, um, I, I like the repetitions in the description of the relictual population that there's, a, there's a kind of looping discussion of it. And it's a very kind of, um, I don't want to say clinical. It's, it's, it's very scientific. It's very objective and very sort of, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but it it does a really nice. It creates a really nice tension between the objective description of a scientific language and the monologue of "I'm the last one." Yeah. Right, and it resists like this, like preachy. Um, you know, anth- Anthropocene, apocalyptic end time stuff, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, and yet it makes me feel so smart about what a relictual taxon is. Like I never, I hadn't, I didn't know that, right? And here the poem just like gives me this rich vocabulary for this predicament. Brilliant. Hmm. 
Yeah, because I, I feel I've read poems before um, with PBQ where there is um, a definition of something in a poem and it can feel didactic. It can feel um, a little bit separate than the poem. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like the the poetic eye here on the right hand side I, I don't begrudge this person for looking this up mm-hmm. in a way we're telling about this mm-hmm. like I feel <laughs> I, I feel educated and I also feel like the awe and the wonder of this that I think this 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 person or this plan or this uh, fauna in exile might feel too mm-hmm. because it, it's not even clear to me if this is this I is a human being, mm. which I like as well, mm-hmm. because sometimes it's inanimate objects or not, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I love that we've gotten all this um Katie intellectual stuff right and then our last four lines are in this coastal moor nest sea water rises hear the sigh shine wow like I could stay in just those last four lines and keep reading them over and over The only thing I don't love, oh, one little thing, is I don't like the punctuation at the end of Ice Age. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's telling me how to read this in a way that pauses me after the left column. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating, Sam. Thank you so much for pointing that out. So, listeners, the entire poem contains one piece of punctuation and it is a period at the end of the first column there are some colons and some parentheses but yeah that's I, the only I'm period. sorry I meant commas and periods yeah like pausing there's no pausing and I, well, I think that the line breaks are actually very 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 well structured in this poem and the, the line break acts as a form of ambiguous punctuation here and then that one period it didn't bother me but now that you pointed out it, I agree it is inconsistent But I guess it could be read to could be continental drift, seawater rises, or an ice age period, and then hear the sigh shine. So I guess you could still uh, do it, but but I, I still remain. This is the only thing that I don't love about this poem. <laughs> <laughs> A dot. Everything else I love. <laughs> <laughs> the dot bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's we, funny now that now that we're looking at punctuation that it it drives me back into the poem and it's and it's interesting what you can see when you're looking for it right like the way those columns are being used right both drives you vertically and horizontally in a super interesting way right and then looking for where the sentences or the thoughts end right and then that that is like a tricky pivot point at the end. Of the the left column, right? And, well, I, and, and the, I, yeah, I do think it's a pivot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the left column, each stanza ends with a colon yeah. to drive you into the next one, and then the period is that ending. So, actually, I'll I'll take back. I think it's a little less inconsistent than I thought, because those those colons are kind of driving you forward, then the period stops it. That each the end of each um, stanza in the left column mm-hmm. is punctuated. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, there's a period in the middle of one, two, oh. three, four, the fifth yeah. stanza as yeah. well. Okay. Oh, but it's okay. interesting how 
I, I just didn't pick up on a lot of the punctuation during the first read sure, at all. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a neat magic trick too. Yeah. Like the, the mm-hmm. punctuation seeds, mm-hmm. right? And then when you start to look at it, you can see the way those colons are really working to drive you forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Sort of vertically. And demanding multiple readings again. Yeah, I'm telling mm-hmm. you, this poem, wow, the layers. Hmm. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm I'm just imagining (laughs) listeners like having to go look. Like at this point, we're talking about we're talking about how it looks so much. There's no way I could be hearing this. Yeah, and not looking at it. (sighs) Yeah, you know what I mean. I was just talking to my students about this too. How it's like really important for literary critics, right, or even film critics to have this capacity to represent a text in their own writing. Like that, that's the first thing, right? Like that you have to be able to represent or describe the, the other text in your own text in a beautiful way. There's no way I, I don't, I don't know how to possibly right. like poor listener, dear listener, you got to look <laughs> at this thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like the way that the, the left um, column is this sort of, expansive latinate mm-hmm. scientific looping and the right column is this very sparse anglo-saxon experiential <laughs> narrowness i think i think that the, the contrast between the two is really nicely constructed right yeah yeah i mean i pointed out one moment and sam pointed out one moment of the left and the right speaking to each other but there's so much of that you guys i mean you really do have to go play inside this poem for a while you know um let me just read this little part across changes and a small area on an island is cut off apart from the whole a subset as one population is confined unleashed metal mm-hmm. isn't that great that's reading across in the one two three four fifth stanza down of the I just, I don't know. I think it's just, uh, you got to go play inside this for a while. I think what else is interesting, and I know we have um, different opinions about bringing up the other poems of the author, but um, the other poem too is about division. Mm -hmm. And even if we didn't believe it worked quite as well, maybe as this, this must be something that's of interest to this poet. And I really like that kind of echo. That's neat, mm-hmm. right? Like Very a solid cool. preoccupation. Yeah. Uh, and now you're making me want to go back in Submittable and read the one that got away. <laughs> because one of these was published elsewhere. We couldn't look at it today. So uh, now I want to read the one that got away. Um, you guys, I'm thinking maybe we're ready to vote. I think so. I, I think, think so. so. All right. Let's do it to it. You guys uh, flip thumbs, just flip thumbs for me so that I know that you have done it even as you type, right? One, two, three, flip. <laughs> and it's unanimously in. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so uh, I have to tell you guys this. I have to tell everybody this. This is so not about the poem. I'm th- sorry. We'll go right back to the poem, but flipping thumbs. A very good friend of mine cut off the top of his thumb. <laughs> 
What? No. Why? Yeah, Alan. Oh, Alan Mayer. I know you know him. What? Alan, he doing- Alan Levine is a, uh, a carpenter and a cabinet maker and an artist. And he works in wood. And he was working on a piece. Hi, guys. He was working on a piece. And um, he cut off the top of his left thumb. Oh my, oh my God. God! How much of the top of his left thumb? So like much, big- like like the most inconvenient amount because it was too little to be sewn back on, <sighs> but so big that they actually had to like come down a little. Like his whole nail bed is gone. He'll just have so he oh has a God. joint, but yeah, right. and he is so upset. He is so yeah. upset, and yeah. I have to tell you that like the craziest thoughts hit me. I was like, "How are you going to text?" And I'm like, "How are you going to ever do this again?" <laughs> right, and that's what it, he, that, that you're making a thumbs up symbol there. Right, right. I'm making a double yeah. thumbs up symbol. Um, so yeah, so yeah, flipping thumbs. But anyway, sorry, Judith yeah. Roney, to go right into the flipping thumbs. But I just had that image in my head. But Judith Roney, Judith Roney, I'm giving you my double thumbs for sure. Like you're, that, you're, all of our thumbs are. Relictual taxon is going to be with me for a long while. It's a beautiful poem. I feel really lucky that we get to publish it. Um, and I, but I do hope Alan gets like a prosthetic thumb. Like, can he get like a fake he, thumb? He actually, he's going to look into. He's going to look into that. Um, yeah, because he does feel. I mean, his joke about. He's, I said, uh, "Oh my God, how are you going to text? Like, you know, try to make light of it." And he Versus said, tears. and he goes, "Oh, I only poke with one finger anyway, <laughs> but I'll never be able to be really excited about something." <laughs> like, you know, putting both thumbs up. I mean, this just happened. And um, honestly, he had the best moment of his life three days before that. He saw Hillary Clinton seeing Frozen with her daughter and grandchildren. And, and wait till you hear it, guys. Wait till you hear it. He didn't say anything to the girls. He just ran when he saw her, he ran to her, bent down, and said, oh, my God, I love you, and I miss you so much. And he burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And guess what she did? Oh, she reached she out and put her arm around him. And he said, I can't believe what's happening, like, through his sobs. Yeah. And she yeah. said, you, neither can I. And she, <laughs> and she was really warm and gracious, and he could not stop crying about it. Like they, they said, the rest of the entire day, he just wept. And, I kind of uh, love him so much. I know I do. Um, I love yeah. him so much, and he, like, honestly, I cried when they told me that it was, you know because I, he was, you know, he very. Uh, next to me, he might have been the most upset person I knew. <laughs> so, and uh, his his love for Hillary's like was even more specific. He had heart pain because of his love of her as an individual, as wow. much as what it meant for our country. Anyway, well, speaking of empathy earlier, right? Like yeah. someone with yeah, empathy, right? Yeah, right. right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys are so gorgeous. I just took a million pictures and we're going to have to put them <laughs> all you taking I have my eraser oh, head hair. I, I'm on the, I have podcast hair. My hair is on camera ready. Right. I know. Here we are at 9 a.m. And Jason gets to be at home. And Mar- well, Mary and Sam, for you, it's five or six. I'm the one who hates morning the most, Jason Schneiderman. And I'm, I'm putting on my I'm putting on I'm putting on my headband. <laughs> 
Dear slushies, we never get to like actually see each other because the, the bandwidth is always a little dicey. <laughs> so we're we're relishing this opportunity to to, yeah. to, I don't know, like, touch each other. Can, can I see Jason? Yeah, I got to take a picture of Jason now with his hair all, all smoothed out. Of his scarf. Now that he has his babushka on. The babushka. <laughs> oh, gosh. I could be in a house dress right now in a babushka, but I'm here drinking an iced coffee. I had Wait, did, rock- we annou- did we announce the results? Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. To this call? the poem yes, yes. it's a unanimous oh, okay I was yeah. just like oh are we still I, I, I'm sorry <laughs> we do go on tangents but my god it's I very early for up. me I, I'm I hoping Judith doesn't mind uh, you know listeners I'd like to tell you this too when Judith um, wrote and said that she was happy she listened to the podcast first which we tell them in the letter you know yeah. please do so that you'll feel more comfortable and she said she was also going to use it in the classroom and I thought that was terrific because we do get letters and comments from people all the time in fact I was at the uh, Collingswood Book Festival over the weekend and um, several teachers came up to me and talked about using the podcast in their classrooms. So listeners, if you haven't thought about that, recommend us to anybody you know who's teaching uh, poetry and creative writing and things like that. I don't know. I don't know. You might have to do your own bleeping, though, Joe. Is there a way they can bleep out every time we say fuck? Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not doing that. No, I don't want to do that. Is there any way they can do that with the recording? I'm a big fan of the journal, The Common. Jennifer Acker's the editor. Yeah. Um, and she's got a great section on her webpage on the um, that is, you know, to teachers about how to use a literary magazine as a pedagogical tool. And I know that's something that we've done at PBQ and you've done that so brilliantly um, at Drexel University, Kathleen, but it's super cool to see how Jennifer is actually like adding that right to the website as just Uh like a list of sources that Mm -hmm. are relevant for how to use literary magazines in classrooms. So I just want to point the slushies in that direction. Well, love for the women and Jennifer Acker. Right. Uh, that's very interesting. Let's talk about that off air in a minute. <laughs> uh, all right. I guess we should wrap it up unless anybody has anything else they'd like to say that they're reading or recommending or talking about, thinking of. I want to say congratulations to the poet Jill Maggie. She um, lives and writes here at, at NYU in Abu Dhabi. And she just had a new book come out. Um on Nightboat, and it's called Speak. And we're great big fans of um, mm-hmm. both Nightboat and Jill Maggie here at PBQ. So nice. Congratulations and love to her. Great. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. We'll put a link on the uh, on the show notes. So thank you, Thanks. listeners, for listening. And uh, please let us know how we're doing, what you think, if you use us to teach, if you use us to teach what not to do. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, thank you, everybody. And thank you especially to Judith Roney. Woohoo!